Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Elizabeth Carney. I'm chair of the Business and Leadership Forum and your host for today's program, which is entitled Innovation and Entrepreneurship, Driving Change in Food and Agriculture. We invite our audience to visit us on the internet at commonwealthclub.org to learn more about the many fine program events held here in the club. Upcoming for the Business and Leadership Forum on July 9th is Why Great Workplaces Are Better for Employees, Investors, and Society. It will be with Paul Herman, Michael Bush, and Emil Aries. All over the world, we are waking up to the realization that we can contribute to a new economy through the food system. Indeed, people all over the world, such as the Meraki people in Greece, are helping their own small villages to thrive growing mushrooms. So now, to bring it back to California, it is my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's program. He is Peter Hertz. He is co-founder of Food System 6, a Bay Area nonprofit organization that supports mission-driven entrepreneurs who are developing innovative solutions to some of our greatest food system challenges. Peter is a co-founder at Food System 6, previously an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur in IT in a number of companies, as well as advising other entrepreneurs as they build their companies. Starting five years ago, Peter committed his professional career to supporting food system change through innovation. He will be leading our discussion today and will introduce our panelists. Together, they will discuss the ways in which their innovative solutions are remaking the food system as we know it. Please come up. Thank you very much. I'd like to uh, also welcome and thank everyone for joining for this discussion on innovation and entrepreneurship, driving change in in food and agriculture. I'm Peter Herz, a co-founder of Food System 6 Accelerator. Food System 6 is a 501c3 educational nonprofit. We work with entrepreneurs building innovations to improve the environmental, physical, and social health of the food system. In addition to the work we do with entrepreneurs, We also work to educate and inform funders, investors, and others on the challenges and opportunities across the food value chain. We believe our work is helpful because there's so much noise in the marketplace of ideas in the food system, and it can be hard to separate solid ideas from the next bad or even dangerous concept. We take a systems approach to this work and look for innovations that tend to be aligned with natural systems rather than those attempting to directly engineer solutions to complex biological and human systems. Recognizing that we are dealing with a different class of problems in human health, agriculture, and climate is an important step. It's time for new tools and methods along with system thinking if we're going to have a chance to address these big issues. I'm sure many of us know these stats, but it bears raising them again. Uh, According to research published in June 2018 in Science, one quarter of all human-generated greenhouse gases come from our food supply chain. There is no silver bullet to tackle these challenges, but the good news 
is that there are a large number of entrepreneurs working on solutions to many aspects of our food system. We're fortunate to be joined by three entrepreneurs for our conversation today. They are working on responsibly raised cattle, addressing food waste, and mitigating plastic pollution. Each company can point to significant challenges that they are addressing. Uh, for example, U.S. methane emissions rose 50% between 1990 and 2005. And according to the EPA, uh, that's traced back to the rise in factory farms and the methane levels in grain-fed animals, which are about 50% higher than their grass-fed counterparts. Although the data is still evolving, more and more studies are showing that regeneratively raised cattle is significantly better for the environment than traditionally raised cattle. Some studies go so far as to say that cows raised with certain grazing practices are actually carbon neutral. It's not the cow, it's the how. It's a good example of how complexity is, is, is deep in these problems. In, in food waste, uh, a recent study showed that, that the food waste market is worth 40, almost $47 billion in 2019 uh, with an anticipated uh, annual compound growth rate of 5% over the next 10 years. And astonishingly, a third of food by weight produced for human consumption is wasted. In a report released last month by the Center for International Environmental Law, researchers stated that by 2050, plastics will be responsible for 13% of the total carbon budget, equivalent to 615 coal-fired power plants. So that's an enormous impact on our climate. So we can all agree that there are big challenges out there. And at Food System 6, we believe that innovation is a crucial part of the solution to these big challenges. Entrepreneurs are one of the best ways to drive innovation. They are amazingly creative and resourceful, as you'll soon hear from, from the three on the stage here, uh, finding opportunities to drive real change when the average person or company just sees and accepts the status quo. I'm excited to have three entrepreneurs join in this discussion, and each of them are working from different angles to drive change in the food system. So I'd like to start. Christine, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, your innovation at Pasture Map. Sure. Thank you, Peter. I often start with the carbon part of it, but I think today I'm going to start with a narrative of inclusion and equity which uh, is really important because in the past six months, you've seen the rise of a lot of alternative meats and many people, like you can hardly open the New York Times today without reading something about how cows are bad. So I just want to reiterate that it's not the cow, it's the how. Um, and my journey to this started with also thinking cows are bad, cows are negative for climate change, which is um, partially a good thing that people are getting more uh, savvy to the impact of cattle on our food system. But where I came at it was finding companies that didn't think farmers were going to be part of the answer. And I think we're at a, an affliction point right now where we have companies that are trying to solve this problem without being inclusive and without looking at from a systemic equity perspective. So 96% of farms in the U.S. are small family farms. A majority of them make less than $350,000 a year. And to me personally, starting this company is any system that um, wants to fix a climate issue without including the farmers who produce our food in the first place is by definition missing a big part of the solution. 
So what PastureMap does is we are a regenerative grazing software company that helps farmers and ranchers implement regenerative grazing practices that reduce their uh, emissions and also uh, sequester carbon into the soil. Uh, this month, we are going to be launching the first soil carbon data sharing network with 20 ranches in California uh, that have been gathering soil data for the past five years. And there is a rancher, Donaga Markegard of Markegard Family Grassfed, who is supposed to be here today. She can't be here because she drove many hours to Modesto and back and got back at 1 a.m. and it's uh, over 100 degrees now. She needs to make sure her cattle have water. Uh, so this, this, is, this is urgent, right? This is, a, this is not only a global big carbon story, um, but it is something that is locally urgent to each and every one of us. It's super hot today uh, for those for folks listening to the podcast. We don't have any time to waste in engaging our local farmers and our food system in solving regional issues. Um, and farming and climate are not just na national or global issues, they're regional. Uh, when you graze animals in a in timed rotations in regenerative practices, you actually restore the amount of grass that you grow, which cools the earth. And that cooling doesn't just happen on a global scale. It has to happen on a regional scale. Uh, so I just wanted to start today with uh, an acknowledgement of the farmers who grow your food in California. And we built this company for them. That's great. Jordan, please. Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Jordan Schwartz. I am one of the co-founders of Regrained. Um, my organization partners with breweries local in the Bay Area, and we take their byproduct from, from brewing beer, uh, which is actually a highly uh, delicious and nutritious grain that uh, the brewers take part of. But what's left over is um, mostly fiber and, and protein, and we turn that into a flour, and we use that to make uh, various kinds of snack food. Um, so... I'll take a step back, and my story will actually be one about underage drinking, um, <laughs> which my co-founder and I, Dan, went to UCLA, um, and in you know between 2009 uh, and 2012, we were home brewing. Um, Dan was a very avid home brewer, and uh, he needed uh, some helpful hands, so I was there uh, there to help him. And I don't know if you guys know this, but um, you can't buy beer until you're 21, but you can buy the ingredients to make beer uh, <laughs> at any age. Um, and as long as you're savvy enough to do it yourself, uh, that is that is all good. And when we were making beer on a really small scale, uh, we would make five or ten gallon batches of beer, and we would be left with giant coolerfuls of grain waste. Uh, and being in LA at the time, there was no compost bin, uh, so we'd go down to the dumpster and, and take the cooler and, and dump it out, and that would go to landfill. And we were very sustainably minded Bay Area kids and hated doing what we were doing. It looked like oatmeal. It tasted like oatmeal, um, but we didn't know what to do with it besides throw it out. And, um, you know, there were some, some recipes online at the time around the home brewing community that uh, you could throw it into a batch of bread and um, some other small scale solutions, but nothing was being done commercially around turning these wasted calories into human food. And also at the time, there was a very large, booming movement of craft breweries, um, which hasn't stopped, if you guys haven't noticed. Uh, and now there are two craft breweries opening every day in the United States. And um, 
a lot of those in urban areas. And in an urban environment, the grain can't get to livestock feed, which is something that is traditionally done with the grain. Uh, so it goes to either landfill um, or compost, if you're lucky, like in San Francisco. And so, you know, we figured that there had to be something that we could do and make a big impact. Um, so we started making uh, making food. And we released a, um, a nutrition bar uh, a couple of years ago. And so that was our kind of like foray into into using the grain. And now, um, along with releasing other products under our own brand, we're working um, as an ingredient uh, with some much larger companies to, to introduce this into our food chain in a much, much bigger way. So it's great. Andrew, please. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Andrew Falcon from Full Cycle Bioplastics. Um, we're a little bit of an unusual business when you think about food and ag. We hit an intersection point that not many other businesses do, both in respect to um, organic waste and some of the byproducts from agriculture and the food business, but also because there's so much food that is packaged and increasingly uh, touches plastic packaging, which is a, a really big problem. Um, Peter mentioned both of those in his opening, and, and to me, that was sort of the genesis of, of where our business started. There is so much organic waste that ends up in landfill and is a huge greenhouse gas generator. And if we don't change our plastic systems, we'll have more plastic in the ocean by 2050 by weight than fish, um, which is increasingly problematic also as that's working its way up the food chain. Um, so at Full Cycle, we have a technology to try to uh, address both of those challenges. And, and what we do is we take um, organic waste, um, things that are not usable for other higher purposes, um, but that normally would end up in, in landfill or maybe in an anaerobic digester or compost, and use that as raw material that we feed to natural systems. So we feed this organic waste to bacteria. The bacteria naturally eat the organic waste and create something called PHA, which is an intracellular fat for bacteria. They use it for energy. And this fat, bacteria fat, you can actually harvest, and it works just like traditional plastics for a variety of applications. So you can replace oil-based plastics with this naturally occurring material. And part of the great benefit of that is because it's made naturally, it has really excellent end-of-life properties. So it is compostable. It's marine degradable. In fact, it's food contact safe. So it has really great uh, properties that a lot of folks in the plastics industry have been looking for for a long time. Um, and because of the, the way we produce this uh, material, we're able to make it in a cost-effective way. And that's what really, from a systems perspective, gets me excited because the introduction of sustainable materials at cost points that are competitive with oil-based alternatives is not something that we've had very much of. Um, Bio-based materials have either been too expensive or non-functional, and if we can change that paradigm, we believe we can help drive change at the system level by increasing the addressable market for these types of compostable materials on the one hand, but even more importantly, by making something that's traditionally very difficult uh, economically, the treatment of organic waste, if you can uh, increase the profitability of that organic waste management, you can drive investment in infrastructure. Infrastructure that's not only good to make this great material that can help address our plastic pollution problem, but that can address the man many of the other existing challenges for other materials that are, are out there and also are facing challenges on the recycling side. Uh, so adding a bio-based material, increasing profitability and infrastructure, and at the same time creating a material that can give choice to people like you and me. 
more and more people are really focused on the content of what they buy, especially on the food side. You can buy organic, uh, you can buy local, but you have almost no ability to influence your package. And so providing sustainable materials that have a, um, a positive impact on the planet and can be part of a regenerative uh, materials loop is a really important part of long-term system-wide solution. And that's part of what we're trying to address with our technology. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I think you know one of the things at, at Food System 6 uh, that we, we hold highly is the importance of storytelling. And uh, thank you, Jordan, for talking a little bit about your origin story. Uh, but uh, <laughs> maybe, uh, uh, Christine, if you talk a little bit about, you know, how did you get here? How did a Taiwanese-American <laughs> private equity executive end up building software for cowboys is a question I get a lot. <laughs> or just, what are you doing here? Uh, so... I am a Bay Area local. I went to high school and college here. And uh, I actually start with how I grew up eating. I grew up eating Taiwanese food at home, home cooked, three meals a day. And then when I went to college, uh, started eating the Western diet, like cafeteria food for three years. And after three, by the time I was a junior in college, I was having these uh, autoimmune reactions that I couldn't explain, but I was breaking out in rashes. I was, my lips were swelling up after meals. And, uh, back then we didn't know very much about the microbiome or gut inflammation or any of that, any of the, the amazing research that's happened since then about how our food affects the microbiology of our gut and creates, you know, creates responses that may, uh, make it difficult for us to digest different foods. So, uh, I went and did a full panel allergy test. They, the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. They're like, your whole body's in inflammation. That's rejecting everything. Why don't you just go be a vegan? So that's what I did for a year. I was on a full elimination diet. I was uh, just getting sicker. I was very fatigued um, and allergies weren't getting any better. In fact, they were getting worse anytime I introduced anything that had, uh, it was something beer adjacent, actually. I love beer. So I was like, um, <laughs> something wheat and beer gluten adjacent. I was not a celiac, but it was, it was creating rashes. So uh, I love cheese and meat. And so I went, I was like, doing reconnaissance at farmer's markets in the Bay Area, going around and trying to buy cheeses and like laying them out in an array and eating them to see if they, they would, uh, I could uh, tolerate them. And that, that was really my entryway. As a conscious consumer who was desperately looking for something who was, that was better for my health, uh, I discovered local farmers and ranchers. And I owe them an eternal lifelong debt of gratitude that they feed me and my loved ones. I basically ate my way back to health. And uh, I found out that the same farmers and ranchers who were producing the best quality meats and cheeses were also doing the best things for the planet. They, they were using practices that were building soil, which I knew nothing about. But uh, the more I learned about how they raise everything without chemicals and rotating animals around, stacking, you know, you having chickens follow pigs, follow cows in natural rotations. Um, and then I, and then I learned these, these astounding facts, like, if we implemented these kinds of regenerative practices that are in opposition to the extractive, you know, chemically driven industrial practices, we across grasslands across the world, we could actually reduce uh, carbon emissions and back to pre-industrial levels within 20 years because grasslands are one third of the planet's land mass. Uh, that blew my mind. Um, these were so I was a food advocate, uh, but I then had a business 
uh, career in in Asia uh, doing consulting and finance, and I was uh, making myself sicker and sicker as well, just traveling around, not being able to find uh, food that made me better. So I quit private equity. Uh, went to go work on a 60 cow dairy farm uh, as a farmhand and uh, found a, an organic dairy that matched with my values. And he actually did these rotations. And so I, I actually never worked in the industrial food system. I thought that everybody did that. Um, and I, I then traveled around the world and uh, worked on farms and ranches on four continents. And I kept seeing the same paper stacks of notebooks and charts on the wall from that, that were like big scribbles and big maps with highlighter all over them of how ranchers and farmers planned these rotations. And I realized that this is, this is the, this is where this is best practice for uh, ranchers who actually care about regenerating soil. They don't have the right tools. And I was like, I can help with that because I have worked in operations management. I have built production planning software. So I uh, went back to business school, got a joint degree in agriculture and uh, built pasture map uh, as a, as a, basically an operations planning software to help scale regenerative agriculture. Yeah. Which is fantastic. It's a great story. Andrew. Christine's story is much more planful and logical than mine. Um, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, so for me, it's it's about kind of getting back to the roots uh, of my family, who are, are small farmers originally from Iowa, and my my dad had a big brother, so he you know had to move off the farm. His brother took over the farm, so he he went to college and he's uh, got an agricultural economics degree, of course, because what else do you do and but he ended up pursuing further development economics and working in emerging markets on food systems and so introduced me to Asia early in my career or in my life rather. Um, and then as I was, was growing older, I was very interested in, in Asia in general, went to work for a large um, Japanese multinational, had no technical background whatsoever and ended up in, of all places, their plastics and chemicals division. So for me, it's, it's about making up for past sins, I think, just about more than anything. <laughs> I spent over 20 years in traditional plastics and chemicals converting businesses. Um, and at the time, started out very naively believing that we were doing good as part of this linear industrial system that has been evolving over the last 50 years to provide more access to products that were being uh, well-preserved and cared and improving sort of standards of living around the world. Um, and in, in that work, I, I built and ran uh, plastics packaging businesses uh, around around the globe. Um, but the longer I was involved in that business, the more aware I became of some of the many challenges with plastics in particular. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the things I hope you all take away from this this discussion today, there is still an it's it's astonishing to me the the um, the lack of awareness of how broken our recycling systems are for plastic. We're in the middle of one of the most progressive areas in California. We source separate. We have all of these different collection systems. But the reality is less than 10% of the plastics that we consume every year are actually being recycled. Beyond that, what's even more astounding to me is almost a third of all of the plastic that's produced and consumed every year goes directly to pollute the environment, whether it's land and ocean. If you're lucky, 40% ends up in landfill and the rest gets burned, which also are not great solutions. Um, so um, the longer I was involved in the, the plastics industry, the more aware I became of the challenges of that recycling system on the one hand and also the, the real lack of sustainable material alternatives on the other. 
um, and the linkages to the petroleum economy uh, also sort of exacerbate uh, that industry. And for me, the, the tipping point was 2008, 2009, after the oil shocks, $150 a barrel oil, I had a 600-person plastic food packaging business at the time. We had to lay off half of the staff, um, really kind of one of the most gut-wrenching and, and devastating things that I'd been through in my life. And it sort of came at a time when uh, I was struggling already with increasingly with the nature of the products that we were we were producing and the role in contributing to this linear um, production and consumption cycle. And my daughter was four at the time, and um, she knew that I was upset. I was sort of sitting in the easy chair and was was crying because we we'd let go half of the the staff of of our uh, of our company and she kind of crawled in my lap and I couldn't explain to her <laughs> you know oil shock recession <laughs> I mean she had no idea but I I explained you know we had to we had to let some of the people who she knew that worked at the plant you know you know go and and she just said why did you do that daddy and so I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're, yes, out of the mouth of babes, you're right. Um, and so that was my my turning point to to sort of say, look, I'm not going to con- continue to perpetuate this linear system when I know that it has all of these unintended consequences. And interesting for me, it started with plastics, but on the food production side too, it's almost exactly the same story. A third of the, the food produced is wasted along the, the supply chain, plastic packaging and the lack of planning around end of, of life are, are really um, challenging. So it took me a little bit of time, but I consciously shifted my focus out of plastic packaging and started to do more with recycled materials, uh, alternative materials packaging, which, which pulled me into um, waste markets and how do you manage waste broadly. And that took me back to my roots and my dad's work in, in emerging markets. And I ended up doing um, about five years of time. Um, in emerging markets in Colombia and Ecuador and Mexico, looking at gigantic open dump waste and trying to figure out how do we prevent all of this resource from going into landfill or open dump waste and contributing to health and and challenges and climate change and and pollution. Um, And standing in front of these giant waste dumps, you sort of smell and see, and they're kind of as, as horrific as you would imagine them to be. And I was intending or expecting to see the plastic pollution sort of rife there uh, as as my experience um, led me to, to have that expectation. But what I became increasingly aware of was the challenge of dealing with the organic portion of that, those waste streams and the incredible impact that the organic fractions are having on climate change. And so trying to bring technologies together to, to handle both the organic and the plastics portions of this waste stream became part of the work that we were doing from a development perspective. And it was in that context that I met the team at Full Cycle. Uh, I was really lucky to meet a really bright group of, of folks, um, co-founders, Jeff and Dane Anderson, um, were much smarter and more enlightened than I was. They sort of came out of undergrad, uh, interested in biosystems and compostable materials and had created this incredible technology and, and were at the point of needing some help uh, to scale the business, to try to take this, this neat technology that was the answer to kind of all of my prayers. It was a source of profit-generating economically sustainable systems for management of organic waste that at the same time produces a compostable material that can address all of these challenges of plastic pollution in a way that can spur investment in infrastructure and function at a system level. So to me, it was sort of serendipity and I was my, my sort of strange evolution of life was supposed to, to land me here. And, and we're now 
really excited as a team because we're we're growing out of that lab. We're having our first commercial pilots. We have a uh, first facility that's just finishing construction this week that will be a real closed-loop example of our system in operation, processing about two tons of food waste a day down on the peninsula. And we're really starting to accelerate and demonstrate that these circular closed-loop systems can work, which I think is one of the really important things to drive systems-level change too much complexity in all of these systems and a lot of naysayers and dogma. And part of what will move us forward is providing examples of things that, that work in practice. And we hope to do that. Yeah, it's great to demonstrate this stuff. And, yeah. and, and I think there's uh, um, a lot that, that I've learned in the work that, that we've done. Uh, you know, it's 2019 and we still cannot characterize healthy human nutrition. We don't know what it is. And there are people out there who claim to, but, you know, every year there's something new that shows up that's either good or bad or 180-degree turn from what we thought before. And you talked about the gut biota, and turns out we have 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells, so we are really walking villages, each of us. And the only thing we know is if the villagers aren't happy, then we're not happy. <laughs> but That's beyond right. that, we really don't understand that much. And if you want to really understand healthy human nutrition, you have to solve for the village. And uh, so it might be interesting to hear uh, from each of you, you know, what has surprised you in your, in your work? What discoveries have you made been interesting? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think for us, even since we started, we were lucky enough to be surrounded by really awesome, like-minded uh, entrepreneurs and other companies um, started by peers and, and just other entrepreneurs that we met through the work that we were doing. Um, and so we've always felt like we were in good company uh, and we always felt like there was a lot there was a lot happening, um, you know, both very close to us and, you know, in other parts of the food system, like, you know, the, the plastic side of, of the food system, um, which is just as much as the food side of the food system. Um, but in recent times, as we've grown a little bit and as we've uh, gotten to the point where, you know, we want to do more to accomplish our mission, uh, which for us, that would be to use as much of this byproduct, grain waste, um, and, and eventually other edible byproducts uh, as we possibly can. Um, that means doing a lot outside of just our little tiny company. And that means working with much larger organizations. Uh, and what I personally have found really surprising through that process um, is how committed some of the people inside of those what I used to think were fairly large evil organizations actually are to the same types of mission um, that, you know, Dan and I, my, my co-founder Dan and I, uh, you know, went out seeking in, in the first place. And, um, you know, from investor partners that we have to just other work that we've done um, with different R&D groups from much larger food companies, uh, it was it's been very refreshing um, to see that there are a lot of really good people inside of very big organizations trying to push change from the inside as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, personally, I've, I've loved being a part of that. And I've had some really good uh, personal growth experiences working with much larger companies, um, you know, where 
it's actually really symbiotic where they learn from us as a startup that can move really fast and is willing to take risks. Um, and what you see more and more now is actually in these larger food organizations, they've developed innovation divisions that they're trying to make, which doesn't always work out this way, but they're trying to make work very independently and be able to move quickly like a startup. Um, and so, you know, they look to us for, for how to do that in the right way to, to accomplish that. And then, you know, vice versa, we get to benefit from that partnership in their resources and their expertise in, in food science and distribution, um, and you know, everything across the board. And so all those partnerships that we've had have been really eye opening and really synergistic. So I think that's something that I've always found really, really surprising. I think building on that, the power of raising collective consciousness is one that is so, so important. Um, when I first came into this, because I was trained in an MBA, private equity business mindset, I thought, if I just make the data visible, they will come. You know, <laughs> ranchers will just change their practices because the the actual regenerative practices triple the amount of grass you grow. So you can stock more cattle. You can also you know reduce the amount of inputs that you have to buy. It'll make you more profitable. Um, and then I hit up against this massive supply chain that uh, even yeah. if the best ranchers use these practices um, – if the consumer doesn't actually know, then they're not demanding it through the supply chain. So the supply chain isn't paying them for their work. Um, but also there, there's a there's a generational mind shift that needs to happen uh, that uh, the customers that we have are folks who are already very dedicated to regenerative. Um, and there's lots of cultural barriers to changing behavior. Um, so the, the, the point I want to make here is that consumers are much more powerful than we know. Uh, and that raising a collective consciousness actually takes big companies and and small farm activists all together. Uh, we we can see General Mills and uh, with Annie's Organics. We see Epic brand. Um, these large large food companies are also starting to use the word regenerative. Uh, and I don't know if it's like the best marketing word. It's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> but uh, I would like everybody here who is a each of us is a consumer to know that there it is possible to raise carbon friendly beef. So the first life cycle assessment just came out in Georgia for white oak pastures. And it showed that with a full life cycle assessment, taking into account the grain and the water and the inputs that goes into producing a pound of grain fed beef, which has all the emissions and the water uh, impact that we've talked about, that you hear about all the time, compared to cattle that are raised on pasture and rotated uh, 100% of their lives, that uh, that grass-fed, regeneratively raised beef actually sequesters half a ton of carbon. So, and and that is not just in Georgia, but over here, back to Donega Markigard, um, the data that we're gathering from from the Soil Carbon Network is actually showing that, I wish I had a slide, uh, but I'll show you on my phone later if you want to see. Uh, her, her data shows that her side of the ranch in Cloverdale and Pescadero actually has sequestered um, on the order of 7 to 25% uh, more carbon year like it's growing over the past three years and to compare that uh to everywhere around her they've sampled around her we're losing carbon like we're actually losing it from the grasslands because we've been through drought and uh soil blows away uh so there's a lot of hope out there and it is possible to make a it's possible to make a significant difference with your purchasing decisions uh, and it takes re basically raising the collective consciousness to make that happen You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. This is a good way to work towards that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that collective consciousness is also something that I would highlight. Um, consumers with their behavior are driving change in a way um, that's really astronomical and unheard of in recent past. Um, the, the battle we face, though, is an education on, on what's there and what's possible. Um, and I'm still surprised. I think I mentioned it already, the extent to which people are unaware of the challenges of the plastics recycling system. I think there's still education that needs to happen around the amount of food waste that's out there to help drive consumer behavior. But when consumers are aware and engaged, they're really active and they want to do the right thing, which is fantastic. We just have to bring systems that allow them to do that. But even in the last year, you see, you know, the straw bans that have taken place um, against single use uh, straws and disposables. These types of actions are are really, um, really powerful and can drive uh, movement up the supply chain, which is the other thing that is still, even though I was part of it, I'm still surprised by the power of the incumbent linear take, make, waste extraction system and consumption system is unbelievable. And to break that paradigm requires an incredible amount of capital, time, partnership, and and people saying, yes, we want these new, better, circular, circular, more sustainable systems. Because the plastics industry doesn't want to change. The waste industry doesn't want to change. The, the guys in the middle of the food processing world are try, doing their best to make it, and they don't want to change. Uh, so we've, we've created a system um, that is supported by government and policy and our own purchasing behavior that's really quite tough to break. Um, and so as consumers, I think individually we have to demand that and vote with our wallets. I think that's, that's quite helpful. Um, and uh, we have to, to, you know, continue to educate ourselves about what's there and available and, and in that process, I think also be open to new and different types of systems. These are also really emotional issues for people, food, plastics, packaging. Um, we could have a eight-hour debate on the right type of plastic recycling system or material or whether bioplastics are good or evil or, you know, how do you solve those issues? And the challenge in that very emotionally charged discussion is that people become very dogmatic and extreme in their positions one way or the other. And the reality is, is these are big, complex systems. There's likely no one-size-fits-all solution. And part of what we have to do to drive forward in a meaningful way and to create solutions and systems-level um, change is to try some things. And, and it's, a, it's more of a yes-and kind of a mentality um, in order to enable change and to enable systems to evolve and grow. And I think that's an important piece for us to remember. Can I add to that that there's there's real hope? Yeah, there really is. I mean, there, so I was reading this article about climate grief the other day, and all, all of us who work in climate know it well. You know, it, this the, the inaction because you see wildfires burning and things desertifying and protests and whatnot, and you get so depressed, and um, that young people are feeling that at a at a very deep and cellular level. I think that 
that it is important to, for us who are working in this, who actually do see hope, because we all know each other, and there's there's uh, there's hundreds of companies that are working on regenerative circular paradigms, uh, and we need to get that word out because there there is real hope. There is real hope that we can turn food waste into nutrition bars into yep. plastics that also creates compost that yep. creates carbon yep. and there's ways to produce meat that's nutritious for you that's also good for the planet and prevents wildfires and stores water and re- brings back streams these are not miracles i'm talking about like that's happening right here yep. in california uh so there's there's reason to hope yeah and, absolutely and to riff on that i mean you're you're hitting the nail on the head that like the consumer needs to know that, right? Because yeah. like sometimes it does feel like a lost cause, right? They're like, well, it's, it's sort of like the, the problem with, with voting, right? It's like, does my vote even count? You know, like, yes, it, it, counts, it counts a lot, you know? Um, and, and you have to, you have to know that and you have to know that like it will make a change and it is making changes and it, it enables all of us sitting up here to, to do what we do, right? I mean, this, we, none of us would be able to be sitting here 10 or 15 years ago, right? Just there, cause we, our businesses. We have to make money. We have to convince investors that our ideas are worth money um, and that we can, you know, make their money back. I mean, that's still part of the, that's and still part of it. stuff costs a lot. And that stuff costs yeah. money. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, but, but the, the fact that things have, you know, gotten to this point allows us to sit up here and allows us to, to do what we're doing. Um, and kind of just like back to my other point, it allows big companies to realize that that's happening. It allows them to see that we mean something. Um, it and allows changing. Yeah. And, and they're changing and, and it allows them to, you know, fly us out to their R and D departments and, and do work with them. And, um, you know, my, my co-founder, Dan always says this thing that, um, you know, we're, we're like a tugboat, right? I mean, we're, we're this little, but very strong boat that can, you know, pull around a cruise ship. Um, if it, allows itself to be tied to it. Um, and so we, you know, we like to think our, of ourselves as that, but um, our, our tugboat also doesn't run without the, the fuel of, of the consumer, um, you know, buying our products, caring about what we're doing, um, you know, giving us the market data to show to investors that we're, we're worth it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's astounding what can be done. I, I ended up doing uh you know, i was in a a, a one-day effort around soil health and just looking at soil and we tested soil and you know one of the things that is amazingly different is if you take conventionally farmed soil you can you can do a test it's a standard soil test to see how long it takes for an inch of rain to absorb and uh in a conventionally farmed uh, a, a piece of land it's you know it can be five to ten minutes to absorb an inch of rain and healthy soil will absorb it in five to 10 seconds. And so one of the big problems we have with the conventional farmland is a lot of the rain that we do get, and we're getting less of it in a lot of areas, which is a problem in its own right. But then it's, it's just washing off the land and taking a bunch of soil with it as well. So it's, it's a, a vicious cycle okay. that if we do it right, actually turns into a virtuous cycle. Which is why Donaga being able to increase her soil organic matter by 25% in three years. These are like numbers that are conventionally unheard of. The, the conventional science is that you can't, it takes millions of years to build soil, which is actually not the case because we have hundreds of farmers actually doing it. They're building like half a percent to 1% 
each year. And that each 1% additional soil carbon or soil organic matter increases the water holding capacity of an acre by 26,000 gallons. So just to give you some sense, that means that when it rains, the soil acts as a giant sponge and holds water there. So for California, that's super important because the, the ability for soil to hold water means that we can prevent droughts. It also means we can prevent wildfires because the, the soil holds water, it st- everything stays green longer, and we don't have this dry desertification that's happening. Yeah. So the good news is a lot of these things turn into virtuous cycles. Fire preventing cattle. Which is why there's yeah. fire preventing cattle. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Much better than a bear. Um, I, love, I like that. Only moo. Yeah, we need to come up with a good fire. tagline for this. Yeah. Oh, I'm also a strong proponent <laughs> of fire preventing boats if anyone wants to talk to me about that later. So let's talk about um, you know, digging into some of the uh, – the biggest challenges you're facing as entrepreneurs in each of your domains. Um, I think that would be uh, maybe a good area for us to dive into. Yeah. Maybe I'll I'll start with a couple that are pretty traditional. Uh, Well, one that's traditional and one that's maybe, maybe not Um, in the work that we're doing, which is material technology that has to demonstrate you know, from lab to commercial scale before you can go out and have a broad impact. Access to capital is always incredibly challenging for these types of more capital-intense material technologies. And so consumer awareness, driving interest in these types of solutions, um, which is enabling groups like FS6 to aggregate people and, and networks like they do, Presidio with its sustainable degree programs. It's it's all building out a network that's, I think, very important um, to attract investment and capital to support these these systems as they go. But the valley of death is deeper and wider for these types of businesses than many traditional sort of startups. And so finding um, the right mission-oriented, impact-oriented capital and non-traditional capital sources to fund these businesses, I think is incredibly um, important and one of the challenges that we have where um, individuals and markets and and government can sort of help um, move things forward. So that's, you know, entrepreneurs always say we need money, right? So that's, (laughs) we need capital. Um, The other challenge for me, which is much more micro around our business in particular, I'm going to talk about plastics a little bit. Everybody understands the challenge of of, um, growing plastic waste and and the the challenges that exist with some of the existing recycling infrastructure. And there's been a lot of really good movement and positive momentum and awareness built around that. But what you hear mostly these days is we need to do things like look at reuse models. So instead of using our water bottle, let's use our, our metal bottle that we take everywhere with us. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Also, increase recycled content. So great. If we are able to recycle material and collect it and increase recycled content, that's really good. That's a, that's a big plus to help address the existing stuff that's out there. But the reality is reuse and recycle are not enough to solve the plastic issue. And the last piece of that puzzle often gets left out, which is there's a huge portion of plastics that are either too small, they don't have enough inherent value, they're made up of multiple materials, so they're technically impossible to recycle, or often they're contaminated with food or other organic material that makes them not possible to go through traditional recycling systems. It's almost a third of the plastic packaging that's out there. So what are we going to do to solve that piece of the puzzle? 
reuse, recycle is great, but don't forget the importance of compostable materials in organic recycling. That's really big for packaging as well as it is for production of compost and regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so many people leave that last leg of the stool off. And I just wanted to make sure that everybody here today heard that. Don't forget the importance of compostables, organic material recycling. That's Organics recycling is an area that we are lacking in broadly across the U.S. We have it here in California and some parts of California, but that's a really important part of a holistic solution to some of these major environmental challenges. That's great. So uh, we're running a little short on time. So uh, uh, consumer awareness, consumer awareness. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and I think uh, uh, there's some uh, regrain product that uh, people can sample and uh, you've brought some things to show, sure. show, and yeah, tell. I can show some plastic, H- plastics. Waste. Yeah. Excellent. So that, that'll be great. Uh, but just a, a closing question before we open it up to questions from the audience is, um, you know, how can this audience, um, very engaged and thoughtful people, um, help support your work? I'm really uh, energized that U.S. grass-fed has grown 25 to 30 percent for the past 10 years and shows no signs of stopping. It's still th- only 3 percent of the market. And then one thing that I'd like the very educated audience here to know is that two-thirds of the grass-fed beef that you buy in the U.S. is actually not from the U.S. So there is a loophole in uh, country of origin labeling that does not require uh, grass-fed to be labeled where it comes from. And so often, if it's coming from, like, say, Brazil – uh, then that's actually deforestation beef, which is like the war is the opposite of what you want, right? So the what what nobody like nobody is deforesting land here to grow grass fed beef in the U.S. So make sure that you buy grass fed, but also buy it from a local farm that you know. And I'd be happy to connect you with some of the here. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we we've talked about it a lot, but. Um, your dollar means a lot. Your decisions mean a lot. Um, you know, when you go into the store, you know, everybody does it. Uh, when you shop online, everybody also does that. Um, take just an extra minute to read about what you're buying, right? And and the company that is producing that thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, sometimes products in our category do cost more. Sometimes they don't. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't always mean that you have to spend more money. Um, but it should mean that you spend an extra tiny amount of time figuring out, you know, what you're buying and, and what that means to you. Um, because one of, you know, I'm just going to loop in the last question really quick. One of the biggest challenges that we've seen, um, from the consumer side is that there's for a long time been data that shows that people care about their food purchases and say that say that they would spend more for a product that's more sustainable. Um, but to be honest, when it actually comes to the reality of that purchase, um, that data just does not always line up with, with what we've seen. Um, and we do our very best to, to create products, um, you know, similar to what Andrew was saying that are win wins or win, win wins, right. Um, that, deliver on flavor, deliver on, you know, nutrition, what, what you guys are looking for in, in food products, but also are sustainable also, uh, come from a a company that has a conscious corporate culture, um, that we're trying, yes, we're for profit, but we are trying to drive change, um, for our employees, for the lives of the consumers, for 
all of our suppliers, for our brewery partners. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's, it's important for people to start following up on what they say is important to them. Uh, because that isn't always, always the case, I think. So yeah, I would say, keep, keep doing what we're all doing, which is demanding change and, and putting out there that we want these sustainable, good products and materials. Um, voting with our wallets makes all of the difference. Um, and in that context, I would also say it's very confusing. Um, and so you've got to sort of fight that constant fight to keep educating yourself on what's the latest and greatest and newest and, and be open-minded in that quest because it's so easy to become dogmatic or take a firm stance. And the reality is, as you listen to a lot of these issues, you know, people talk about beef. Nobody would think of some of the nuances that you're bringing to the table. That is true around all of these issues. And so anybody who says I have the answer, the only answer they're, they're, it's probably not correct, right? And so we, we need to have uh, uh, multiple systems, multiple technologies to address things holistically. So we need to stay out of our own way because when we're overly dogmatic, sometimes the, uh, the, the quest for perfect gets in the way of good. And there's a lot of good that needs to happen in the short term right now to help catalyze real change in the time span we need it. But also, if you, whatever your values are, whatever the highest standards you can imagine are as a consumer, somebody is probably building that product. Like if you want something you want, like wildfire fighting beef, that is, or like totally compost creating plastic that, that supports fair wages and all, yeah. any, anything you can imagine. Yep. Somebody's probably building it. So go find it and buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I might suggest just as a closing on that topic is to to do your own homework. People tend not to do that, and they rely on sources far and wide and figure it out. Do your own homework because that's how you you learn and and can separate what is valid from what what isn't. It's it's really crucial. So shall we? I want to. Uh reintroduce our panel. I want to remind our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and on the radio that we're listening to innovation and entrepreneurship driving change in food and agriculture with Peter Hertz, moderator, and panelists Christine Sue, Andrew Falcon, and Jordan Schwartz. So I get the first question. <laughs> um, and Andrew, is there much crossover between U.S. and Europe in terms of these uh, innovations. I have the impression that sometimes Europe has some good ideas, or South America. Like, are uh, is there some peer sharing going on in that way? Yes, um, I think there's been a lot of good work done internationally, and particularly when you look at plastic pollution and the plastics issue. Um, you know, pollution knows no borders, and so Europe has done a tremendous amount of work. Um, in sort of quantifying some of the challenges around plastic pollution and also about being prescriptive in um, sort of broad policy guidelines um, that can be effective, we believe, globally. And and they are those three prongs that I mentioned earlier, increase reuse models, increase recycled content, and focus on compostable or new material alternatives. Um, and so implementing policy across the EU, um, we're seeing a lot of uh, recent movement for um, the additional policy around banning single-use disposable products, which also will have a, a broad impact. All of that's quite possible or, and, and favorable. Um, the one comment I would make is that 
in Europe and in the U.S., we sit as developed uh, economies. And what is possible and might work here does not always work in emerging markets. And so part of what we need to be careful about is setting policy frameworks or guidelines or systems that may be relevant for Europe and the U.S., but that don't make sense in um, Southeast Asia or Latin America, where, in fact, we have some of the, the deepest challenges around waste infrastructure or the lack of waste infrastructure and where there's a disproportionate amount of the plastic pollution that's ending up in the ocean is, is being um, being driven. So, um, yes, lots of good collaboration, a lot of good people working on it, a lot of progress being made. Um, and I just would add that caveat that not all solutions work in all geographies, and so we've got to be cognizant of that. Good to remember. While you uh, line up at the microphone, I want to ask whether you're listening from the standpoint of human health or sustainable ecosystems, and one is not different from the other. I would pose the question, what can each of us do as change of habits individually, in community, with our collective consciousness? So I pose that to keep in the back of your mind. This is a wonderful panel. Please uh, start us out with your question. Great. This one's for Christine specifically. Um, I'm curious what interest or interaction you guys have had with more of that corporate side of the regenerative movement. Obviously, your tool is specifically for farmers, but groups like General Mills are obviously leading in this space. But I'm curious if there are others you've worked with or seen interest from. I know Applegate is a leader. Patagonia Provisions is doing the grain side, but that also should feature beef if it is truly regenerative. So curious about that space. That's a great question. And it's only in the past couple of years, Patagonia has actually been a leader in regenerative and trying to push regenerative organic certification as a to position it as beyond organic. And that, that's been very helpful to shape consumers' minds about what that is. It's like, oh, organic means organic means no chemicals, pesticides, herbicides that kill the soil health. And then beyond organic is you're working to increase the health of the soil as well, which has all kinds of great beneficial effects. So um, yeah, Patagonia has been a leader. Uh, General Mills is driving change from Annie's into the rest of their portfolio. Um, Epic also uh, a leader in that. Um, and I'm starting to see regenerative uh, being used in other packaged goods as well, like Dr. Bronner's is a partner of Patagonia's. So those are all great brands and you should support them. Pamela Gordon with Presidio Graduate School. Thank you so much for coming to speak at our panel. Each of you has mentioned a term for what it is you're doing, whether it's circular economy or regenerative or regrain, right? And the question came up earlier, what will most consumers respond to? How will they understand? Uh, circular economy, it sounds kind of like an economic theory. So I'd like uh, from any of you, each of you, to hear what terms you think would resonate most with your customer base. Yeah, I think um, there has been some work that started to be done around that because you're right, there is a lot happening and sometimes we don't know how to communicate that in the best way, right? Um, when we were first starting out, uh, we were really wary of using the words food waste at all, mm -hmm. uh, right? Because, I mean, it's it's funny even to some people still now, right? It's like talking about eating garbage, right? And that's what people's minds uh, go towards. I mean, even when we were designing early versions of our packaging, um, 
we're we're very bold sometimes. Uh, we came up with this version, which like got probably too close to going live. That the whole front of the package <laughs> basically just said, um, "Eat beer, fight food waste." You know, it was like the entire thing, and our <laughs> brand was like a tiny little thing in the corner. Um, we we didn't put that out, um, and you know, we felt how powerful that would be. But the truth of the matter is, you know, when that was like four years ago, uh, that product would have tanked. There, there was no way that that would have had the consumer acceptance, um, you know, beyond buy right uh, here in San Francisco. Um, but. There, there has been some actual academic studies around, okay, this movement is happening. What do we call it? Um, and, and for us, there, uh, there's a, a, a man named Jonathan Deutsch who uh, works at uh, Drexel University. Um, and him and his team just did this really awesome study around uh, food waste and specifically around some of what they did was around terminology for, for food waste products. Um, and what, you know, they, they did a, a really large poll of, okay, well, what are people going to respond to? Um, and overwhelmingly, which was lucky for us, uh, upcycled was by far the, the winner. Um, and so what, what we've used for a long time now, uh, beyond our brand name, which is regrained is, uh, edible upcycling. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like a, a coined coined term that we that we use uh, both internally and externally for um for what we're doing and, and what we're trying to accomplish I, I think we definitely have this problem in agriculture farmers are very inward looking and they we love nerding about out about soil health and that really doesn't carry over to the consumer i was just telling jordan earlier that one of uh, my favorite farmers Didi boyas of root down farm sells at the ferry building and mission mercado uh upcycles beer from from uh, Highway 1 Brewery into her hogs. So that's basically mm-hmm. beer-finished pastured pork. <laughs> and that sounds delicious. <laughs> and it is. So uh, we're working with some of our local farmers now to try to figure out whether there's a terroir narrative to what is local to us what is we have orchards we have lots of food waste in in nuts and stuff that's left behind in the fields what um is it possible to talk about finishing animals in a delicious way that captures the imagination of of our region yeah, yeah. no i i think i might just add um the food system is very broad so working out the terminology is is difficult uh, we partnered recently with a graduate student to uh, actually map the food system because it's pretty opaque. A lot of people don't know what goes on underneath. The products all have pretty pictures of happy cows and a bucolic scene, uh, but that's not really what goes on. And so even just mapping it out has been an exercise. And so that's some of the stuff that we're working on at, at Food System 6 to make that more visible so people can understand where their food comes from. Marketing matters, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> In the same vein, um, my question is about. So I'm I'm Polly Golikova. I am a communication strategist in the food systems world. Um, and a question that I come back to over and over again is, how do we maintain the integrity of our messaging while also inviting 
dominant paradigm stakeholders into the conversation. <laughs> like, and I, I'm overjoyed to hear all of you have already like spoken to that in your own ways. So just to like pinpoint that a little quick. I, I laugh because you added the caveat about bringing in existing stakeholders into the conversation. I think, I think, um, yeah, communication and standard settings is really important. Transparency is really important, but it's really confusing. So, like, if you talk about the plastic side of this equation, is stuff compostable? Is it industrially compostable, home compostable? What about marine degradability, um, soil degradable? You can't even use the words biodegradable in California, um, and you can't use the words compostable unless you have a product in an area that infrastructure exists that can allow for compostability. So it's a really confusing um, and challenging environment. Um, I think it's one of the biggest, biggest challenges we face um, in addition to sort of the nomenclature around circular economy or upcycling or whatever it is we're trying to do. It's a real paradigm shift across the board um, and it requires time and focus and alignment um, to be transparent and clear and to take some of the confusion out. So in the case of our material that we produce, PHA, which is a relatively new material to come to the materials market, we're in the early stages of uh, establishing a trade association specifically designed to help provide and aggregate information about this particular material. It's called Go PHA. You can find it online. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we need more and more of that uh, type of activity, um, and not specific to materials, but I think broader around um, particularly end of life and what happens with products once they're complete, whether it's organic waste, food waste, byproducts, plastic waste, um, more alignment around what types of systems um, are necessary for a holistic solution. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question Um, because, you know, it ties right into obviously the the last question we were talking about, um, how you present your product, especially when you are actually a consumer brand, um, matters more than I could ever tell any of you guys. And you know, because you go to the store and you see uh, all of that messaging. Um, for us, if if you haven't been introduced to Regrain before, uh, I urge you to go online and um, read some some pieces on our blog and things that we've written and, and um, interviews that we've done with, with press. Um, we are a sometimes alarmingly transparent organization. Um, it's something that uh, Dan and I um, and, and all of our team honestly are really, really committed to. And it's part of, um, it's part of our, our uh, you know, corporate culture um, that, that we talk about a lot to, not be afraid to show the world um, both the good and the bad and the, the challenges that we face and, um, you know, not be afraid to say the wrong thing in an interview or not be afraid to put a blog post out because, you know, an investor is going to say, hey, we didn't know about that or, you know, something like that. Um, so I think just like transparency in general is uh, – I think it's in its infancy uh, as far as uh, companies go, but um, – you know, it's something like companies like us can can do a lot to be that that tugboat on, and and um, you know, the more the consumers say like, "Hey, we really like that," the more the big guys are going to follow. Um, 
so I think, yeah, just in general, that, that aspect of transparency is big. Um, but beyond that, I mean, when you're, when you look at packaging and, and what we put on packaging, um, because that's the place that matters the most and you have the least time to communicate what you're doing and, and what your message is. And especially when it's like companies like us, where we have so much to say, um, it's really hard and a tiny little space and a tiny little amount of time to, to communicate that. And, um, there's no one answer to that. It's just, uh, put your marketing hat on and, um, you know, do it in a way that has integrity, um, and, and find the words that work the best, like upcycling, um, you know, for you, I'm sure you've, you've thought a lot about that. I mean, we were just talking about how you guys are looking into all these new ways to, to present your products and, you know, the more educated consumer now has all these different things that they can choose like 20 different categories of, of grass fed beef. Right. And it's not just that, that grass fed category. Right. And so, um, I think it's, you got to choose your words wisely, but then that also goes back to you as consumers to try and take your time to learn because our packages are small and, and time is short and we can only do so much with, with that. I think this is just me crystal balling. I think <laughs> that the in the food industry, these large categories are continuing to fragment. You can see that from the big guys actually want what Jordan has, right? That's authenticity. It's integrity. You said it both in your question and answer that we are hardwired to build relationships and to connect. And I think on an emotional level, the brands that are connecting are the ones that are authentic and that have integrity. And it's like, you don't know what the words are, but you know it when you see it. And in especially in the Bay Area, we are very fortunate that you can actually Google a lot of you can go find that farmer directly. You can find that food product directly. You probably Google the the company and find out that they're based in Oakland and they have practiced radical transparency and write everything on their their marketing. And I think that that is what big brands are starting to realize that they need. Uh, and so I don't know. I think we're winning. Yeah, no, I, I think we see this at Food System Six that uh, big companies are uh, uh, very eager to meet at innovation because they need it. And they already know that they aren't able to generate innovation internally. And so uh, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to meet in a productive way with uh, the very big uh, entrenched players. There's a local chocolate company. I think it's called Alter Eco that's gone, <laughs> um, done uh, quite a lot on the packaging side. And I do my best to eat as much of that chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> It's also delicious. It's great. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we've reached the point in our program where there's only time for two more questions. So let's do it kind of popcorn style. I will try to be brief. Um, Sandra Burke, retired nurse. Uh, I'm old enough to have grown up a pre-plastic. And I am wondering, I mean, and all of this is so complicated and our lives were not nearly so complicated. The meat came in paper and the milk came in bottles. And my question is, do you see any any future for reusable glass absolutely because yeah it just i mean it was so easy yeah <laughs> and um, it didn't didn't yeah. leach stuff into your food absolutely i think i think those types of systems will continue to come back and find their ways where they're economically safe and healthy and viable um, and I think we'll see, um, I hope, a reduction in, in use in traditional plastics in particular where other applications um, can be used and, and be as effective. One of the things we forget, though, is that 
Um, plastic growth came in part because it's so cost effective and it's functionally so good and it's provided healthy, safe packaging for a lot of, of products and goods that has, um, you know, really helped standard of living grow kind of across the world. And so it's, it's not as easy to sort of go back to the way things were across the world and in all places. So we can lead and, and go back to more pla uh, glass where it makes it, it makes sense, but we've got to find some good solutions for the rest of the world as well. We can't, we can't sort of pick and choose where we, we provide a, a healthy, sustainable solution. I think consumer education is so important. Yeah. I bought lime juice yesterday. There were three brands, two in plastic, one in glass. I bought the glass. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Um, how do you use like storytelling as the rope to like lash the the your companies to the tugboat? You know, cuz cuz we're as humans we're hardwired to for stories. And when I'm at the grocery store and I see a product that I know the story, I'm going to buy that product. Um, because whether it's grocery shopping or recycling, it's like kind of mindless acts. But if there's like underlying behavior that we know the story, that will like – it's the gut. It's the oh, – Story gonna, is huge. Story is huge. It so, is the core of uh, the Food System 6 Accelerator Program. Mm -hmm. So we work on story. Two of our panelists here went through that actually. So uh, you want to dive in on the importance of story? Sure. I mean, um, sort of telling your personal story is one aspect of that. Um, but I think um, in a broader sense, all of what we're doing are impact businesses where um, the why and the how we're doing really, really matters. And so as you say correctly, how do you com communicate that? Um, it's very different if you're focused on consumer-facing branded goods as, than if you're a, an infrastructure company. But as an infrastructure and materials company, we're still telling that story not only to our investors to find the right people who see um, what we're trying to do, but also as we look and choose our partner base with, with whom to work. Um, and so – in our case, we're we're just now. I can't mention our partner's name yet, but we're just about to turn on our pilot facility here in the Bay Area. The part of the story that will go with that is: Hey, we're taking two tons a day of food waste that otherwise would have gone out into landfill or compost and generated greenhouse gases. And in lieu of that, we're taking a hundred percent of that that byproduct from our operation, and we're upcycling it into value-added products. We're making compost that we're using with our local farmers who are then provisioning us back for our food operation on the one hand. And on the other hand, we're making PHA bioplastic, which is compostable, marine degradable, food contact safe, that we're going to make food packaging that we can use also in our closed loop system. And when you can tell that story, it makes everybody who's involved in that process excited and pleased to be a part of it and to do their part in it. And that can become an example of, hey, here's a small successful example of a closed loop system all you naysayers who are out there who say it can't become a regional or a municipal level system, well, here's an example. Let's put a couple of them next to each other. Looks like that's municipal scale. Let's get going. But you can start to tell that story and people can internalize through their actions why what I'm doing actually makes a difference. And hopefully that will help spiral us upward. Yeah, I mean, um, for us, telling our story has always been something that we knew we were going to have a leg up on um i mean we 
we just have a story that that is uh, that's great. I mean, it resonates. It's a it's a heritage story, right? That came from two dumb college kids who stumbled upon a really great idea for the world. Um, you know, but we we've taken that and and um, you know, heritage story is just like kind of like Andrew's saying. It's only one tiny little piece of what story you get to tell, right? And if you do it right, then you get to take that heritage story and you get to turn it into the story of what your company is doing, right? And, and how that impact is being made and, um, you know, what your products mean and, and all this stuff gets to, you know, you get to keep building on that story. And, um, you know, for us, we were lucky enough to have that, that good heritage story. And now, um, I mean, I obviously still use it in, in a crowd like this is cause it, it gets attention, but, um, you know, what we focus on is, is way bigger and, um, and more important than, than where we came from. Um, so I think it's, you know, a, a good company is an evolving story, right? That you get to you get to change, and you get to, um, you know, use the pieces that you've already developed um, and that people already know uh, to to build upon. So, um, yeah. okay. I also think that in technology, as technology comes and automates everything, or that you have these faceless companies that are building brands, you don't know who's behind. Actually, one of the last things to be automated will be story. If I told you that both of the ranchers I told you today about are women, that women run ranches are actually at the forefront of regenerative agriculture, that Didi is one of the only queer farmers, Root Down Farm, that's in the area, or that Donaga practices indigenous land acknowledgement, those are, t- those are things about them as human beings. And we are hardwired to connect to human beings. Like it, I could quote you a whole bunch about their climate impact, but but you may feel a personal resonance to that human and want to buy from that human because of who they are. And I think that's really powerful. And that's actually something that technology can help enable with transparency. Yeah. Thank you to all of the these panelists that have told their amazing stories that we all resonate with. Uh, thank you to Peter Hertz, Food System Six, Christine Sue. Pastor Matt, Andrew Falcon, Full Cycle Bioplastics, and Jordan Schwartz, Regrain, for their comments and their amazing work here today. Thank you. We also thank our audience here at the club and, as well, our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. That was well done.